Michael's called out the page number already, but page 984 in the Bible in front of you is where we'll spend our time in God's Word today and out of Colossians chapter 2. We're, on a, we're in a series on the book of Colossians where we're focused on Christian maturity. That's what Paul is, cares about deeply and what he's moving toward and for in this letter to this young church in Colossae. And in verse 8, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's his exhortation after saying, walk in him, which we looked at last week. Now he says, don't get sidetracked, don't get taken captive, don't get off course. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. It's, honestly, it's this issue that likely was the reason Paul wrote the letter. He had heard about the Jewish teaching that had come in and among the Colossian church, and he wanted them to resist it and to stay faithful to the gospel and to continue to walk with Jesus, And so he writes this letter, and this, this text that we're dealing with from verse 8 to verse 23 is actually the heart of his um, warning to the church in Colossae. If you submit to these things, they're a threat to your growth and maturity, so resist captivity, avoid captivity. Don't get deluded by plausible and enticing arguments, as he says in verse 4 of chapter 2. Now, we are no longer, I don't think, most of us are no longer subject to kind of the, the Jewish philosophy and thinking that was likely the one that Paul is writing about. So there, there needs to be some issues of translation here as we seek to apply this text to our lives today. And yet, I want to say we are in a similar position to the church in Colossae. They were followers of Jesus who had responded to the gospel and were, getting, were beginning to bear fruit, the fruit of faith, hope, and love. And we too are disciples of Jesus who I trust are bearing that fruit as well. They were followers of Jesus who were subject to the daily pressures and temptations uh, and compromise, to compromise, and we are in the same boat. They were real people with real jobs and real families and real issues and real communities seeking to live out this new resurrection life to walk in Christ within their particular context. We're trying to do that in today's polarized society as well. They were subject to competing ways of thinking, thinking about and understanding life, which threatened their maturity in Christ. We are no different, as there are all manner of ways of thinking in our culture today that threaten to sidetrack the church and to, to thwart our maturity in Jesus. So, though this was written to an obscure community in what we know as modern-day Turkey called Colossae, we find that as God's word, it retains a, deeply a deep relevance and freshness as we listen in to what Paul said to the church long ago. So we want to consider three things, the dangers, then the reality, and then the solution. So that we're going to look a little bit at the dangers that Paul is identifying for the church try to understand those in a context of today, then at the reality of the church, where are we? What is the true reality that we live in? And then finally at the solution to resisting captivity. So the goal is maturity, the danger is being taken captive. So let's look at some of the characteristics of those things that can take us captive. Um, I'm going to make four observations here under this heading. The first is that they are man-made or of the world, and therefore not from or of Christ. So look back with me at verse 8. After the warning, don't let anyone take you captive, he says, um, this philosophy and empty deceit is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, 
The word there that's translated elemental spirits, sometimes, or elemental principles, is the word stoichia. And it gets used twice here in Colossians 2 and one other time in Galatians chapter 4. And when Paul uses it both there in Galatians and here in Colossians, he doesn't define it or explain it. So it's become the, the grounds of much discussion and deliberation among scholars in the commentaries. It could mean, and this is based on its use in other Greek texts from the same period, that the physical elements of the world, basic, most basically earth, water, air, and fire, as such, these elements reflect the natural order of the cosmos, an order that is infused with the glory of its creator, but that apart from the power of its creator has no ability to bring about real life. Or it could mean something along the lines, and we get the translation here, of elemental spirits, of, of local tribal deities like Artemis in Ephesus. If you read Acts chapter 19, you'll know how significant Artemis was as the tribal deity of the people of Ephesus. These tutelary deities of nations or regions, if they have any existence at all, and they do at least in the minds of their followers, they are under Christ, as Paul makes clear many times up to this point in the letter. So whatever the stoichia are, they are weak and worthless, as Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 9. They have no power to bring about life. And they lead in verses 20 through 22 here in our text to regulations that are said to be according to human precepts and teaching. That's at the end of verse 22. This is an allusion to Isaiah 29. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Jesus cites this text from Isaiah 29 in both in Matthew, in the, the account that's related in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 um, when he's critiquing the Pharisees and the scribes for promoting traditions of men as the commandments of God. Conflating things that he would argue are from below rather with things that alone are from above. So these human precepts and teaching or human tradition, as we go back to verse 8 where Paul mentions human traditions, as we succumb to them, these are enslaving and not liberating. This is the first point about the dangers. They're, they're man-made. Um, and I should say at this point that Paul's target is not here what we have come to know as the Christian tradition, which... I do think has a lot of value for us as disciples of Jesus, the spirit-led guidance of the church over the last 2,000 years that can be very helpful in assisting our lives of growing to maturity in Christ. At the same time, even that tradition has been rightly critiqued within um, the history of the church. We think of the Reformation era in particular. There are still parts of the church across the world today that are holding on to tradition that in some way opposes God's word and scripture. And, and scripture is always the ruler over the tradition of the church and is the, the metric by which we measure that which has been handed on to us. And so there's a right critique even of the Christian tradition according to, um, from, from scripture that keeps us from becoming enslaved to things that are not of God, that don't liberate, but instead cap make us captive. The second thing to say about the, these dangers is um, they involve becoming submitted or enslaved to lesser rulers or authorities than Christ. And that's because, as we've seen in Colossians, Christ has been exalted as Lord over all. He is the one in whom, through whom, and for whom all things have been made. And in our text, look at verse 10. We'll come back to the filled in him, but who is the head of all rule 
and authority. And in verse 15, we read that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ or in him. In other words, all lesser authorities have been defeated by God in Christ, so becoming subject to them, to them again, whether to Judaism, which was the kind of most exalted religion in the known world of Paul's day, or to Rome, which was the exalted empire and government of Paul's day, to become enslaved or subject to these things after coming to Christ, who is over all of them, was to become enslaved again. It was become, to become captive, to be taken captive. Anytime we embrace an authority or a dogma of an entity that is less than Christ, we are actually, and Paul uses this language here, we are only grabbing at shadows instead of the real substance. So verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul here is engaging in a particular critique of those things that would have been found within Second Temple Judaism of his day. Verse 16, food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These were all things that were, that were native to the Jewish tradition of his day. And Paul says, look, these are just a shadow of the substance that was to come. We think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Why grab after a shadow when you have the substance? That's the argument here. And Paul is saying quite radically, and he uses the same critique in the book of, in the, his letter to the church in Galatia, the letter we know as Galatians. Paul's making this radical statement that for these young Christians to grab on to certain dimensions of Judaism now would be actually for them to become enslaved once again to the stoichia, to the elemental principles or, or, or spirits of the world. Once Christ has come, once we've seen the fullness, why go back to these lesser things that were merely pointing to the true substance? Now that the age to come has entered in, why grab onto something from the previous age and think that it can bring you greater or deeper life? It's foolish to do so. The third thing to say is that, well, we might say, well, if it's so foolish and kind of that obvious, well, why would we be tempted to do it? Why, why are we tempted to grab onto these plausible arguments and philosophies about how life works in our culture? Well, it's because they always are enticing in some way, right? They always have some kind of alluring promise. Think about the proverbial kind of windowless van with an older guy with cookies offering to a child, you know, to kind of bring him into captivity. Uh, no, one, no one walks into a place like that, um, you know, without some kind of allurement or enticing. And so these philosophies and traditions are enticing in some way. Think about, um, and Paul says that um, in verse 23. Look down at the end of our text. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They have an appearance of wisdom. What did the fruit on the tree in the Garden of Eden look like? It was desirable. It was a delight to the eyes. There was something attractive and winsome about it that was drawing us in. And these different ways of seeing life will always present themselves as valuable. They'll always offer some kind of promise, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of enhancement of life. You know, you will become like God if you eat of these things. But these lesser realities can't deliver that. 
It actually may be in the context of the, of the first century that these early young Christians, because they were, they were the new kids on the block in terms of religion, and they didn't share the same protections in the Roman Empire that the ancient religion of Judaism would have, it might have been that part of the reason they were attracted to take on some of these elements of the Jewish tradition was because it might afford them some greater protections from persecution in the empire. So there was something kind of attractive. Maybe they thought they were valuable in their own, for their own sake, but also maybe they would have brought some kind of protection to them. But Paul says, as we finish in verse 23, though they're attractive, though they have an appearance of wisdom, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These lesser realities, these philosophies of life that we are tempted to abide by in order to gain what they promise, they actually can't deliver. They are of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh in that sense that the impulse of sin in us which actually diminishes or cuts us off from genuine and true life in fact instead of offering value they just slow us down that's the picture of the metaphor of captivity they just lock us up they keep us from moving in the right direction I want you to notice, too, these dangers to the church in Colossae. They were not merely going to give up Jesus altogether. This wasn't about rejecting wholesale Jesus and embracing Judaism again. This was actually a syncretistic approach. This was to bring something in to the fold as you continue to try to keep your grasp upon Jesus. But Paul exposes this foolishness and suggests actually that trying to maintain Jesus plus anything else, allegiance or loyalty to anything else, is equally as damaging as rejecting Jesus and holding on to something exclusively without him. The syncretistic dimension or temptation is just as limiting in, in, in um, bringing us into captivity as is the wholesale rejection. So in summary, then, these are the four characteristics of the dangers. They're man-made and of the world, not of Christ. They involve submitting to a lesser rule or authority, what we would call idolatry. They promise great things and have the appearance of wisdom, but in the end, they have no power to really bring life. Now, I've said that we're not subject to the same philosophies that they were in the first century, at least certainly not in the same way. But I think we, we would do well to try to name some names here. Uh, to bring this into the present day. Because we, the church, like the church back then, do find ourselves confronted by all manner of philosophies, of plausible arguments that seek to take us captive and cause us to lose progress in maturity in Christ. So let me offer what some of these things might be. The dogma of a culture of fear and man-made security, whereby we trust in our military, our security systems at home, our fences, our door locks or deadbolts, more than we trust in Jesus. How are you trying to assuage your sense of fear? That fear is bred deeply through the media and through advertisements, our culture around us. We very much live in a culture of fear. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. He says that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. There's the dogma of financial security, which tells us to spend our time and energy and effort accumulating more and more money and possessions to ensure provision for the future. And while there is nothing wrong or unbiblical about saving and being thoughtful and wise about the future, this does at times threaten to take us captive, to become our consuming ambition and to curtail our obedience to Jesus. Jesus says instead, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.
Perhaps it's patriotism in some way, where that has become idolatrous, and there is a temptation to believe in the spread of maybe American values and the ideology of freedom as if our nation somehow has the answers to human problems to which we have become so wed that our allegiance to Christ becomes compromised by these deeper, perhaps greater passions. I do want to say that, of course, patriotism can be a very healthy thing, that love of country is, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, and that being a good citizen of our nation is something that we should aspire to be as disciples of Jesus. Scriptures speak of the goodness of, of government, even, in Romans chapter 13. And yet, having said that, we can only offer our ultimate allegiance to one king and ruler and authority, to Christ himself. And that means that we are to be first and foremost about his kingdom project, which supersedes any national project of any nation of which we may have been or presently are a part. Maybe it's the call for comfort and luxury with which we are bombarded on a daily basis in our culture, promising joy and happiness and peace through additional consumption and pampering built on the premise that we deserve the best. That's pretty prevalent out there. And yet, clashing with that, Christ calls us on a road of self-denial to take up our cross with him, to lay aside our privileges and our rights for the sake of obedience to the Father and for love of our neighbor, even love of our enemy. Perhaps similar to the Colossians context, the danger is a list of rules and a certain mold that we've come to think, you know, that's really what godliness must look like. So in order to be a legitimate Christian, I need to act this way or think this way or I can't do this thing and, and so on and so forth. And Certainly, we are to be urged, and we are urged in the New Testament against excessive indulgence of the, of the appetites, and that is a good and healthy thing for us as followers of Jesus to hear. And yet, the New Testament affirms the goodness of creation, and Paul mentions asceticism in this text, and it says, if, you know, there's a kind of modern-day asceticism that I think can at times substitute genuine godliness in Christ for a kind of man-made version of it that has no power to change us. Or maybe the danger is an attachment to a certain kind of mystical, spiritual experience that we come to think of as necessary for a genuine life in Christ. Paul mentions in verse, verse 18, those who go on, go on in detail about visions, and likely these were spiritual ecstatic visions that were being emphasized as the, as the measure of spiritual maturity. He actually undermines this argument in 2 Corinthians as well. I studied abroad for a semester in South Africa in college, and I... I came out, I joined, a, I was a part of a church during the, that time that was like very, very, very charismatic. And there was most definitely, I mean, they, they loved Jesus, but there was definitely a message communicated that if you didn't express certain supernatural gifts of the spirit, that you were not on the kind of right plane in terms of being a disciple of Jesus. And I don't think that's a biblical argument to be made. We affirm the gifts, but what we see is the great indicator of maturity in Christ is growth into Christ's likeness. As we humble ourselves before him and we are washed by his love and we walk in that love day by day. Or, or maybe it's a concern for power and influence. You know, and we need to be honest and careful about the fact that one of the human philosophies that the church can often be taken captive by is, is partisan politics and the political captivity of the church in the modern world. And just being aware of that danger and careful of that. Again, we come back to saying we have one king, one ruler, and him alone that we follow. And he calls us on a path of downward mobility and of service of all. So I offer those as a number of ways in which we could understand this 
idea of being taken captive, of the, the philosophies that are at times plausible and enticing to us that can kind of come in and shape us and curb our growth. And I do want to say that often these things come in below, they come in like under our defense mechanisms. They can come in just through the everyday instruments in our culture, through the shows that we watch or the the books that we read or the newspapers or the news that we watch. These things kind of get seeped, they they can seep in. I remember a quote from Tim Keller from an interview he did five or six years ago where he said, all those narratives, and he's talking about these competing philosophies, have just come right in through songs and through sitcoms. And our training didn't even make us notice that there was anything wrong with those. They often just are subversive in the way that they begin to shape and take captive the church of God and lead us down pathways that are not toward life, but undermine life. So how can we resist? What is our reality? Because I've I've stepped over what are some of the most explosive verses, and I want to come back to them in verses 9 through 15, and talk about our reality as the church, as the people of God, in light of all of these potential like pitfalls and places to be taken captive. Where are we now? We are unioned with Christ. We are in Christ. And remember, this is the Jesus who is, in verse 9, In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, he is the head of all rule and authority. If we flipped back to verse 3, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And what Paul says in verses 9 through 15 is that we are in him, united with him, having died and having been raised with him in and through our baptism. He says in verse 12, we are now alive in Jesus. And we have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ, having put off the body of flesh. We've been now marked out as as his people. And I want to say three things about who we are in Christ, this union with Christ that Paul so celebrates in these verses. First, we're full. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him. That is, we lack nothing. If we are in Jesus, we have been filled by the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is nothing that we lack. Every little thing that is promised by every other philosophy or human tradition is already yours and mine in Christ. For you, all things are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And because we are full in him, it diminishes our need to fall prey to the temptations of these philosophies and traditions that are wooing us and promising us certain results. Do we know this? Do we know that we're full in Jesus? That we lack nothing of significance, meaning, and value? That we can't be filled up any more than we already are by him? And do we let this knowledge of our fullness tame our appetites and cravings and covetousness because we already have all that there is to have in Jesus? Do you know this? The second thing to say is we're forgiven. Verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. These young believers in Colossae knew that they had been pagans living a rebellious life of of open sin and shame. If we look back at at verse 21 in chapter 1, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he says. 
But now God has made you alive with Christ and he has forgiven us wholly and completely and absolutely. We have been raised with Christ as those who have been forgiven. The debt that was set against us, he says, was nailed to the cross. This accumulation of our shame and our sin, of our guilt before a holy God, this was nailed to the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We are forgiven. We're not only full, but we are forgiven. And so whatever your life has been marked by, the reality is, is that because of the cross of Jesus, your sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven in him. It is cared for by him, such that you are now able to be alive because you've been cleansed from sin, because you've been united with the Lord of life. Do you know that you're forgiven? Do you really believe that you can be forgiven? And then the third thing that he says about us in Christ is that we are free. Free from the body of the flesh in verse 11. We've been, we put, he put off the body of the flesh. That is that thing that wages war against God and is subject to sin and death. This has been removed and we have died to it. We are free from our old identity, from our, the, the network of family and society to which, 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 to which we used to give primary allegiance and which gave us our identity. No, now we have a new identity in Christ and we give our allegiance fully to him. We are free from the rulers and powers and authorities of the world, the stoichia, if, you have died, if with Christ you have died, he says in verse 20, to the elemental spirits of the world. You've died to these things, as he says in Romans 7, you've died to the law. It has no longer has authority and power over you. These elemental spirits no longer have authority and power over you. They can no longer demand your allegiance because you have been set free through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God has disarmed them. And shamed them openly, triumphing over them in Christ and the cross. And you are free. As full, forgiven, and free. You are no longer subject to the philosophies and traditions of the world that say, for example, demand that you be beautiful or you will be left behind. That you have money and wealth or you will not have security and life. You're set free from every oppressive system and thinking from the domain of darkness, and you've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. The question is, now that we're free, why would we become captive again? Why would we grasp for a shadow when we have the substance and the fullness? That's the argument of this long section of Colossians chapter 2. You're full in Christ. You're forgiven in Christ. You're free in Christ. So don't be subject to captivity. Instead, walk in him by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit on this long road of discipleship. And don't be sidetracked by the dead-end alleys that promise so much but deliver nothing that actually take away the life that we have in Jesus and diminish that life. Let's not be romanced by the dangers of this world, not adding anything to Christ, philosophies, dogmas, but holding and clinging to him. And this is the final point I wanted to make. It's in verse 19 about the solution then. If we've seen the dangers and then we've seen the reality of our fullness, forgiveness, and freedom in Christ, and how do we resist these dangers? And in verse 19, Paul points to a solution here in this text when he actually says that those that are tempting them are not holding fast to the head, 
I just want to flip that and take out the negative and say that the way that we resist captivity is we hold fast to Christ. By recognizing that in Christ we have died to everything and been raised. By acknowledging who Christ really is. And this is why Paul has spent so much of this letter already detailing for us who Christ is, the cosmic Lord over all. And by remembering all that he has done, that God has done for us in Christ. And notice how the story of Jesus is woven into the argument of Colossians up to this point. He talks about the gospel that's bearing fruit. He talks about the, he, he, he uses allusions to the Exodus about liberation and, and, and being, being freed from slavery in, in chapter one. And then in chapter two, he talks about we've died as we've seen today, that we've died with Christ. And then in chapter two or chapter three, he's gonna move on to be, if you've been raised with Christ and seek the things that are above. And then Christ who's at the right hand of the father, he's ascended and then he's actually gonna come back. So this is the story of Jesus that is our definitive and grounding narrative and reality that we have participated in this narrative of redemption that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So we hold fast by remembering. It's so common in the biblical text for the people of God to be forgetful. And Paul, by the way that he's writing this letter, is encouraging the Christians in Colossae to remember the redemptive act of God in Christ as a means by which they are holding on to him and resisting captivity. The goal is maturity, to walk in him. And here Paul's saying, please be careful. There are so many ways that you can be taken captive. Remember your reality in Christ and resist that captivity that you might bring glory and honor to him. May we not be taken captive as God's people. May we be wise and intentional and hold fast to Christ, daily living the reality of God's grace and love toward us in a polarized, angry, and challenging culture. May we do it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. And we thank you for the fullness that we enjoy and the forgiveness that we enjoy and the freedom that we enjoy in Christ. Please more deeply write these realities upon the depth of our hearts and our minds that we might resist captivity and bring glory and honor to you as we move out from this place of worship into the world that you love. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.